All right, I'd like to uh, start off by introducing the idea. It's probably something that you're already familiar with. Uh, in 1962, the American uh, physicist Thomas Kuhn came up with this idea of a concept called a paradigm shift. Have you guys ever heard that term, paradigm shift? And a paradigm shift comes when the majority of what we know to be true about something is, is, is rendered incompatible based on new information. And we basically have to agree to start thinking about this thing that we thought we understood in a completely new set of terms. So I went online and I typed in paradigm shifts in science uh, and it took me about 45 minutes to, uh, to find some that I could even explain, right? Because I don't know anything about phys uh, physics or anything like that. Here's, here's just a couple quick examples. Around 150 BC, this Greek astronomer, he came up with several new theories about how the universe worked and uh, a lot of them were really groundbreaking and uh, considered, you know, held, held to be widely true for about 1,500 years. But uh, uh, his system involved this, this, this main idea that all the planets and moons and stars revolve around the Earth. And that was thought to be true by scientists and astronomers for a long time. Uh, but uh, in about 1543, uh, they came up with the Copernican system, which of course was the corrective that everything revolves around the sun and not the earth. Another example is for about a thousand years, doctors and scientists held to the miasma theory of disease. And with that, that comes from a Greek word meaning pollution. And there was this idea that any time there was an outbreak of diseases or any time there was an epidemic, it was because of miasma. It was because of bad air. And it was believed that all diseases came from this bad air that came out of either uh, rotting food or rats. And that's what the scientific community thought for about a thousand years. In 1880, there was a paradigm shift and it occurred when the germ theory was introduced. And we now understood that diseases were spread from, from germs and what germs were. Here's a final example. Uh, for many decades, studio technicians went to great lengths uh, to keep instruments and the notes on musical recordings to be like very clear and crisp. But in 1962, the rock band The Kinks they released a song called You Really Got Me. Do you guys know that? Do you know the, the bass line to that? It's like dirty and distorted, right? Because one of the musicians from that band, he knew he could create this new sound that no one had really heard before by taking a razor blade and stabbing his amplifier. And you'd be really hard pressed to give an example of a rock song that was released in the last 60 years that didn't have that dirty electronic distortion. Because when people, when musicians heard that, it created a paradigm shift. That's what rock and roll is supposed to sound like. Well, as we continue our study from the book of Ephesians on how the gospel or how the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is meant to produce hope and joy in our lives, we come to this passage today about why sin is bad. If you've ever been to Sunday school, if you've ever heard a sermon, you've probably heard somebody explain to you that you shouldn't sin, you shouldn't disobey what the Bible tells you to do, because sin is bad, because sin is naughty. That's what we're told our whole lives. Uh, of course, we have a couple inner voices that we hear. We hear inner voices every day. One is just kind of our self-interests, 
And a lot of times when we're tempted to do something that we know the Bible tells us not to do, we hear a voice from that preacher or we hear a voice from Sunday school and it says, don't sin because sin is bad. But the problem with that is if we're tempted, there's at least some part of us that wants to do that thing, right? So if we're tempted, if there's at least a part of us that wants to do that thing, we think to ourselves, well, maybe sin is bad, but I want to do it. So there has to be something good or beneficial about it. Other times we hear that voice of culture. And that voice from culture tells us, how could sin, maybe sin is naughty, like my pastor said, but if everybody else that I know does it, how naughty can it be? So what I'd like to do today is bring our attention to this passage from Ephesians 5, 1 to 13, and it doesn't tell us not to sin because sin is bad. It doesn't tell us not to sin because sin is naughty. It tells us that as we obey what Scripture tells us with a loving heart, hope and joy is produced in our life. And when we choose to give in to temptation, when we choose to sin, as we all do, myself included, it brings a darkness into our life. In other words, uh, we're going to approach this passage that was just read to us in two quick parts. And number one, we're going to talk about four insights from this passage about why sin is bad, about why sin is destructive, about why giving into temptation brings destructive tendencies into our lives. And then in section two, we're going to have four insights or encouragement on why obedience is good and what the benefits are to resisting temptation and living with the loving heart that God calls us to live with. So let's just jump in and let's talk about the consequences of the path of sin. I promise you guys, I'm not going to tell you sin is bad, sin is naughty, don't do it. I'm not going to pretend like I don't sin. Instead, I want us to just really focus in on what this passage shows us about how disobeying God brings destructive and unwanted things into our life. All right, the first thing is this. It tells us in Ephesians 5, 2, that sin casts an unpleasant aroma into our lives. Sin brings an unpleasant aroma into our lives. Ephesians 5, 2 says, uh, You should walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what this is implying is that if obeying God brings a pleasant aroma into our life, it's assumed that uh, uh, disobeying would bring an unpleasant aroma as well. About seven or eight years ago, I was living in Wisconsin. I think it was August because it was like the heat of summer. And my dog, we had this Labrador at the time, and they've got really sensitive noses. And he would just kind of sit by the garage door, the door into the garage and whimper. And I thought, something weird's going on. And so I opened up the door, and he walked in, and he smelled around, and he went right to the front of my Volkswagen Jetta. And he just started making this whimpering noise and kind of licking the front grill of the car. And I thought, well, that's worth investigating. And uh, I also noticed around that time that there was a terrible smell in the garage as well. And I, you, know, you don't have to be a detective to put two and two together, like something awful smelling that was contaminating the whole lower level of my house was coming out of the engine of my car. So I popped the hood, and basically I had been driving down the highway, and I hit a bird at the perfect or the most inopportune time, and it got sucked right through the front grill of the car. It was all mushed against the engine block, and just in the heat of the Midwest summer, it was, it was rotting, like there was maggots on that car. It was a terrible, terrible smell. It was an unpleasant aroma. Uh, 
Like I took a stick and I tried to get it off, but it was, it was on there too tight. So I looked online. I saw that the, like the oil change place was probably open for another hour. I drove down to Madison as fast as I could, and I said, I'll pay you whatever it takes to just get this thing out of there. And so they took that hose that shoots the high-powered air, and they just cleaned it out down there. And uh, after a day or two, the smell faded away. The first implication that Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 5, 2 is that there's an unpleasant aroma that comes into our life when we disobey what God has called us to do. So please don't hear me saying, don't sin, it's bad. Hear me saying, when we give in to the lust in our heart, when we covet things that aren't ours, when we look at pornography, pornography, when we engage in coarse joking, when we let our anger go unbridled, when we do all the things that this passage classifies as sin, it brings an unpleasant aroma into our lives. Now, when we're tempted to do any one of those things, we tell ourselves, well, it can't be that bad if everybody else is doing it. And even right now, you might be rationalizing it and saying... I don't think anybody else really even cares what I do in the privacy of my own home or my own relationships. But you have to admit, when you come across somebody else that does any of those things, you quickly go to a trusted confidant and you say, guess what my coworker was looking at on his computer? Guess what I overheard in the store? Guess what so-and-so did? Because we know that sin brings an unpleasant aroma when we see it in the lives of others. Am I right? And then we come home and we're like, nobody really cares what I do. But guess what? Those people are telling those coworkers what you said and what you did and the ugly things that created an unpleasant aroma in your life, just as sin brings a really terrible smell into my life as well. The writer of Ephesians goes on and gives us another reason why disobeying the things that God has laid out for us is really bad. And it says uh, in Ephesians 5, 2, that, that sin is really unfitting for believers because it's the opposite of what Christ has fit us for. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says that Jesus Christ came down and lived a life of love and sacrifice to set us up so that we could be forgiven and that we could take that example and that we could live lives of love and sacrifice for others. That's the model. That's one of the main reasons Jesus came and did what he did, according to Ephesians 5.2. But, it goes on and says, but instead of wearing what you've been fit for, you go on and you do all these things. And in Ephesians 5.3-4, it gives this long list of sinful and self-defeating behaviors that each one of us often choose instead of living that loving life of sacrifice that Christ fit us for. That makes me think of this one episode of The Simpsons that I saw a long, long time ago where Homer doesn't want to do chores in his house because he's this lazy husband. So he goes out and he gets a helper monkey for like handicapped people. And he thinks that this monkey is going to help him accomplish all the chores that his wife expects him to do. Of course, after just like a week of living with Homer, the monkey gets fat and he turns alcoholic and, and Homer has to give back the monkey because the monkey's cholesterol is too high, right? In other words, like it, it couldn't even do the tasks that it was trained to do because it got corrupted, right? Like Homer corrupted the helper monkey. And that's kind of a humorous way of looking at this pattern that we're given in Ephesians 5, 2, 3, and 4. It says, Jesus Christ came to train us to do what he did. 
But, but we're, that, we're that helper that's been corrupted, and now we're just living like everybody else does. And so again, don't hear me say don't sin because it's bad. Hear me say that the second reason that we're told that sin is, is so destructive is because it corrupts us from what we've been prepared and trained by Christ to do. A third thing that it tells us here is that sin is destructive because our behavior and our choices, it reveals who we're partners with, okay? So in Ephesians 5.7, it tells us not to be partakers or participants with those who live in disobedience to God. That's pretty straightforward. But just a, a paragraph or so earlier in Ephesians 3.6 the author uses the same word, the same, con- uh, the same context, and he says that, that those who live for Christ, those who love God, they should be partakers of the promises of God and the inheritance of God. So since it's the only time these two words are used, clearly there's a supposed to be a link. And if we just sort of put it all together, it's telling us that, that we can either be partakers or participants in the good things that God has promised us, and the inheritance that comes from loving and walking with God, or we can be partakers in the disobedient things that other people do, and, and our, our behavior shows who that we're partaking or participating with. I read this fascinating book about the drug wars in Colombia in the 1980s, and there was this really terrible gangster named Pablo Escobar. And a story like this plays out time and time again. These guys are driving these trucks and they're full of stolen goods and they're full of drugs and all of a sudden the police stop them. And they look in the back and you know it's, it's full of a million dollars of drugs and so they pull out their guns and they go up to the driver and they say, you're under arrest. You can't be transporting drugs in Colombia. And the driver takes out his phone and he dials and he hands the phone to the chief of police and Pablo Escobar's voice says, Plata o ploma? Plata o ploma? And that's the Spanish word for, do you want silver or lead? Because right now the police chief can get silver, you can get coins, you can get money. We'll bribe you, we'll pay you off for all your trouble to just look the other way. Or I can give you lead. I can give you a bullet, and you and your family can be dead. And time after time, the police chief and all the people around realized that Pablo Escobar had a lot more power and influence than they did, and they had to choose silver or lead. Do you want something good, or do you want something bad? And what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 5, 7 is that we have a choice as well. Do we want the promises of God or do we want the punishment of God? Because to partake in the things that these disobedient people are doing, it says it brings God's wrath. But to partake in the promises of God, it says it brings all the good things that Scripture offers for us. I don't want this to sound like I'm suggesting that God looks down on us and as, as, as we make a mistake, as we sin, that he just creates something bad to happen in our lives. I don't think that's necessarily what Scripture is laying out. But the Bible says the promises of God involve things like purpose and fellowship and forgiveness and acceptance. That's what the promises of God are for us. 
But the consequences of sin in Scripture, it, it talks in Romans 1 about how sometimes the biggest punishment that God offers is to just let us experience the consequences of the sinful things that we've chosen. And so, in these terms, the consequences of sin are isolation and shame and guilt and deceit. So when I use that example about uh, the, the police in Colombia that had to choose between silver or lead, like it's telling us here in Ephesians 5-7 that our behavior dictates what we partake in, what we participate with. Do you want the promises of God, which include things like purpose and fellowship and forgiveness and acceptance? Or do we want the punishment of God, which are a result of our sinful consequences, and they play out with things like isolation and shame and guilt and deceit? So I hope that kind of brings into focus. It's not that every time we mess up, God brings an extra punishment into our life, but there are consequences that come from giving in to sin. And, and, and sometimes it is guilt and shame and isolation. Um, and that's not what God wants us to partake in. He wants us to choose promises. He wants us to experience that forgiveness and that fellowship and those, those promises made to us. Here's another one. In Ephesians 5.11, it tells us that another reason why we're told to avoid sinful behavior is because sin is relationally unfruitful. Ephesians 5.11 says this, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Okay? In other words, when we engage in sin, it makes the relationships in our lives that are most important to us less fruitful, less pleasant less good. It tells us in the Bible not to exasperate our children, parents. It tells us not to exasperate our children. And as we do exasperate our children, it makes them less likely to obey, less likely to respect us, less likely to absorb our wisdom. How about this? If we lie to a peer, if we lie to a sibling, it deteriorates the trust and the fellowship that we would want to have with that person in the future. To consume pornography undermines the intimacy with our spouses that we're obviously longing for. Or to cheat or to steal financially, it creates a vulnerability in the margin that we're obviously trying to build up at the same time. In other words, we could come up with example after example of how sin is relationally unfruitful. We might feel like it's the best thing for us at that time, but according to Ephesians 5.11, Sin harms the relationships that we value and want to build so much. The devil loves to whisper into our ear, nobody's going to know, nothing bad's going to come out of it. But of course, if we reflect honestly, the overwhelming majority of the sinful choices that I've made, that you've made, they've had negative relational consequences. So that's something to think about, right? Sin isn't bad because the Bible says it's bad. It's giving us reasons why it harms the things that we actually value the most. All right, so those are all a couple of reasons uh, why, uh, why Ephesians 5.11 is telling us that, that sin is destructive. It's something that we should avoid. Um, but the Bible also loves to encourage us to walk the right path, to, cho to choose the path of love. So what I'd like to do now is just wrap up with a couple other things from this same passage that are meant to encourage us. Meant to encourage us that when we resist temptation and we do what Scripture lays out for us in a loving way, 
it has positive benefits in our life and relationship as well. All right, the first one is this. It tells us that obedience to God is the exact same thing as loving people. Is that interesting? Because we don't always think of it in those terms. But it tells us in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, that obeying what God has called us to do and obeying with the right heart is synonymous with loving people. So Ephesians 5 says, uh, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's telling us that to imitate God is to love like God loves. It tells us that to live and love like Christ is going to have a loving impact on the people around us. Sometimes we have this false construct that the Bible tells us to be good, and if we're good, we'll kind of be like a teacher's pet. Did you guys, can you guys remember anybody from second or third grade, and no matter what the teacher said, they always laughed at their jokes. They were always the first one at the front of the line. They were always sweeping up. They were always doing whatever they could to get on the teacher's best side. And I think sometimes we have this, this thing that we need to have a paradigm shift from because we have this idea that, well, if you do everything the Bible says, you'll just be like the teacher's pet. And nobody really likes the teacher's pet. But what it's telling us here is that we're not supposed to obey because it makes us the teacher's pet. It doesn't make us God's favorite. We're supposed to obey and follow God's model because that's the best way to love people. For example, if you were just super serious about following the example of Jesus Christ and the way that he treated people, your relationships would be filled with grace. Your friendships would be full of mercy. Your marriages would be full of forgiveness. Your relationships would be full of truth and generosity and hospitality. Does that make sense? If we mirror these traits that Jesus Christ most demonstrated, people in our lives would feel really well loved and seen and heard and understood. Now, I'm not saying do that because it'll make you more popular and it will make your relationships better, but Ephesians 5, 1-2 is telling us that when we walk the path of obedience, you will, love people, you will love people more well than they've ever been loved. Uh, my wife recently did the most loving thing that anybody's ever done for me or my family. I found out last Sunday that my father was in hospice and he had only hours or days to live. And my wife said to me, you know what? I'm a nurse. I'm built for this. Why don't I hop on a plane and go down and help your father's transition from the hospital into hospice? Why don't I spend a few days with your mom? And why don't I sort of get this process right where it needs to be? I thought, wow. Nobody's ever done anything that sacrificial and loving for me. So I said, why are you offering that? Like, is there a catch? Where is this coming from? And she said, I want to love my mother-in-law like Ruth loved her mother-in-law. We've been reading through the Bible in a year, this last year, uh, kind of through a church-wide program. And so I just want to point something out. My wife didn't decide to do something incredibly loving because I'm a great husband. She didn't decide to do something incredibly, transcendently sacrificial because I deserved it. She did it because a couple months back she read through scripture and she came across this story of what it looks like to love well. 
And then when she had an opportunity to do that, God spoke to her heart and said, now you go love your mother-in-law like Ruth loved her mother-in-law. Obedience to God is the most loving way that people will ever feel loved. And I think that's just a beautiful example of how when we, when we fill our hearts with Scripture, God comes like a, like a lightning bolt at a later time and strikes us and gives us the power to love in a way that we wouldn't have the capacity to love on our own. And that comes through God's power, but we kind of set the table by understanding what love looks like in its most idyllic form And we do that by being familiar with the stories of Scripture and then loving people obediently in that same model when we have the chance. It tells us in Ephesians 5.2 that another benefit for just obeying Scripture and doing our best to live up to that model is because loving obedience uh, in the the right way with the right heart, it produces relational pleasantness. Okay? Okay? It says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us is a fragrant offering. To obey scripture and to resist temptation and to do our best to love like God calls us to love creates a fragrant offer, a fragrant smell in our lives. And let me give an illustration of that. I'm going to tell you guys some things that come with some smells attached. And I'm going to watch your expression when I read this, all right? Fresh-baked cookies. A mountain meadow. When you climb into bed for the first time with fresh sheets. Your kitchen 10 minutes before Thanksgiving. Like, everybody is smiling a little bit. Everybody's like, I like those things. Those things are pleasant. What about this? Nursing homes. Your hands after you pump gas. When you put garbage in the dumpster on a hot day and you try to walk away right when it closes. Right? Like, oh, these are all gross things. These all make us shake because they're so nasty. Ephesians 5.2 is telling us that when we avoid sin, and and maybe that's just a churchy way of saying, when we obey God with the right heart, it, it produces that first list. It makes people smile. It makes people say, I want to hang out with him more. I want to have her often. I want to have her over more often. I want this couple in my life more. It produces a fragrant and pleasant smell. Just in contrast to, to sin causing that more negative response. As we move on here and start to wrap up, it tells us in Ephesians 5.13 that when we obey God with the right heart, it eradicates wickedness. When we live lives of obedience, according to Ephesians, it gets rid of sin and bad things. Not all the time, but sometimes. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 5.13. It says, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. In other words, when we live with the example of, of, of living and loving as God calls us to, it, it exposes in the lives of others that they're doing things the wrong way and they would probably rather do it the right way. Let me illustrate that. Think about a spiritual role model in your past. Think about somebody whose behavior just helped you understand what 
Jesus was like. Maybe their fidelity and their faithfulness to their spouse motivated you to try to work through some problems in your own marriage. Maybe you know somebody who's just so consistently patient that it motivated you to stop giving into anger so easily. Maybe you know somebody who just has such positivity in their outlook that it helped you see the ugliness of your tendency to be negative. Ephesians 5.13 is saying when we live as God calls us to live, it helps expose sin and self-defeating behaviors in the lives of others, and they want to gravitate towards those good and better patterns. What happens when you come home from a camping trip and uh, it's, you've been on the, the trail for a couple days and you open up the trunk or you reach in the back and, and everything's just wet and moldy and gross? What do you do? You hang it on a line. You bring it into the sunlight. You bring it into the fresh air because you know that the heat of the sunlight is going to kill off all the germs and, and the breeze is going to get rid of that smell. In the same way, Ephesians 5.13 says that when we obey, one of the benefits is that it, 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 it brings those dirty, moldy things into the light and the light kills off those gross things that need to be eradicated. And the final example that jumped out to me from this passage in Ephesians as to why we should avoid temptation, why we shouldn't give in to temptation, why we should just try to... I, when I first read this passage this week, I'm not a very creative guy, I came up with this title, Stop Sinning. Because the passage is so obvious, Stop Sinning. But then I got to Tuesday or Wednesday and I'm like, we all know we're supposed to stop sinning and we don't really do it. So there's got to be something more to it. And that's when I started to see all these clear reasons why sin is so destructive and why obedience brings good things into our lives. And the final benefit of, of, of obedience, according to Ephesians 5, is, is that the more that we obey, it brings the light of hope and joy into our lives, as well as creating a distance from the discouragement and the shadows of death. The more a person obeys, the more the light of hope and joy will enter into our outlook, as well as this kind of distance from the discouragement of sin and death. There's this, uh, this kind of strange quote that this passage ends with, and it ends with this, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is one of the only passages in Scripture where we can't find what's being quoted. For a thousand years, people have been looking for where's the place in the Bible that, that the author is quoting, and there's no clear place. And so I think the most obvious solution is that, uh, and this is good for our worship leaders, he's, he's quoting a favorite, a favorite song from his congregation right? He's quoting a song that they all know because he's putting it in quotes. It's not anywhere else in the Bible. I think it's a song that they would regularly sing. I think it was probably one of the congregation's favorite songs. And what it's saying is that as we obey and as we love as God calls us to love, we will grow in hope and joy. We'll grow in our understanding that we are far away from the harmful effects of sin. Let me close with a final example. I officiated a funeral once for a really old crabby farmer from my last church. I hope nobody from there is listening to this recording. Nobody in his family could say a single good thing about him. Like they couldn't find any of the sons or daughters that would come up and even read a eulogy. There was so much pain and discouragement in the family. They finally found a grandson or a nephew who came up 
And in the eulogy, he included that this deceased, this farmer, used to run over the farm cats with his tractor. Now keep in mind, the eulogy is like the best things you can think of, right? Like the eulogy are the good things. And that was like all he could come up with to remember. In funerals like that, they're no fun to officiate. Everybody kind of sits there with a discouragement. Everybody sort of processes the loss and they think, I hope my life ends better than this. I hope there's more to life than what Grandpa stood for. I hope there's people that will say positive things at my funeral. And whenever it's time to sing hymns at funerals like that, everybody looks exactly like you look right now. There are no mouths that are moving. There is nobody that is singing audibly. Because as you sing these funeral songs of hope and joy, everyone's like, I don't find much hope and joy in the after effects of the way that that life was lived out. Another time I officiated a funeral for this woman named Bev. She was over 80 years old. I remember visiting her in her hospice bed and you know, I'd be reading passages and every time you get to the end of the page and like you have to just pause for a second and turn the page and Bev's mouth just kept going because she knew every passage by heart. She was just this saintly woman who loved and lived well and, and scripture was just memorized inside of her because it was the hope that had driven her throughout all the decades I, I was in kind of that rare part where I actually had to tell some of the family members there's just not going to be enough time for you to get up also because there's just so many other people that already want to get up and share wonderful memories of Grandma, Bev, or Mom, or, or Aunt, or whatever. And you better believe at a funeral like that, everybody's singing. Even the agnostics. Even the atheists. Because for just the briefest of moment, they're like, I want what she had. I want the hope and the joy that that person demonstrated throughout their lives. So I'm going to sing along. Because the pastor's going to be the only one that knows that I'm singing anyway. Right? I think that's just a beautiful illustration that living and loving as God calls us to, resisting sin, it produces light. And that light is hope, and that light is joy. So at this time, we're going to transition on to the Lord's Supper. You might be new to this church. You might have celebrated it differently uh, in past spiritual places that you've gone. I'd like to just explain really quickly, anybody that's here with us today is uh, more than welcome to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. I'm just going to read a couple of verses that just sort of remind us that Jesus Christ asked us to take communion, to remember that he came to live and die for us so that we could be free, so that we could try to obey, and even when we fall short and even when we fail, there is forgiveness for us to continue to try to live lives of light. If you do want to participate in the Lord's Supper with us uh, and you didn't grab some elements when you came in, there's just some in the table in the back. You can feel free to go and grab those. Uh, if you already have them, I'd just ask you to open those up at this time. 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.